0: Good morning again. Uh, I really am so grateful you've chosen to join us this morning on campus or if you've chosen to join us online. It's a good choice. I'm not sure what was happening in the living room of people who are watching, but we were cranking in here, yes? Because it was a good, good reminder. Our four words in God... We trust, right? That's what we said last week, and that's what we say this week. In God we trust, and so uh, it's good to be under the authority of a sovereign, good, wise God. No fear there. We trust in Him, and, and that goes in the big things and the small things. So uh, let me, before we jump into the scripture, uh, share with you a couple of things we are trusting the Lord with right now as a family, and, and I don't mean my personal family. there's things we're trusting the Lord with, uh, our church family. A couple changes coming. First, our associate pastor, Ryan Jorgensen, uh, believes uh, that he is called and gifted, and we agree to be a lead pastor. And so Ryan is currently looking for a congregation, a a role where he gets to exercise those gifts. Uh, You'll probably remember that's not new. He was a lead pastor five years before he came to CFC. So we're not surprised by this. We're happy for him. The elders have blessed his searching. So would you pray for Ryan and Holly and their family as they look for the next role that God has for him? And would you pray for us as we look for another associate pastor? So what are our four words? In God we trust. Also, Cindy Harvey some of you ladies already know this. Cindy has been on staff for 20 plus years and served in a variety of ways and a whole bunch of people. And she is by year end retiring. Retiring, not because she's old. I never said that. She is retiring because she wants to be able to give even greater focus to ministry to her family and to her friends, and we are thrilled that she has that opportunity to do this at this point in her life as well. But again, that means that we are trusting Jesus, the head of Christian Family Chapel, to provide it in our current and future as he so faithfully has in our past. So would you pray with us as a body, as the Lord blesses Ryan and Cindy in their next stage, and uh, as we seek to See what the Lord has for us. All right? Cindy, uh, one more thing. Cindy is intending, thankfully she and Hugh aren't gone anywhere, and she said, oh, there's some ministries that just because I won't be on staff doesn't mean that I won't still pour myself into. And I really appreciate that because uh, what's very clear about every church is uh, the real work of the ministry only happens as people who have been gifted by God, volunteer to build up the body in Christ. And so I want to encourage you. We have coming up this on November 15th, this workshop called Gifted for God's Glory. And here's the premise. If you're a believer in Jesus, he has gifted you in a particular way for the building up of the body in love. And it really is, God-honoring in obedience to the scripture that if this is your church home and Christ lives in you, that you would pour yourself out for the building up of the faith in this body of believers in some way. And so if you're not sure what your gifts are, that's what this workshop is about. Or if you're going, I think I know my gifts, but I'm not really sure how to put them to work, if you will, at CFC. So for some who are already serving in four capacities, no, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> if you're hearing me, and I, hope, I think you are, if you're not serving in any way, this would be a workshop that I would ask you to prioritize and then say, all right, how am I going to begin to use my God-given gifts as a steward of it for the building up of the body, all right? If you can't make it on the 15th, let us know, and we'll try to help you live out the gifts that God has given you for the building up of his body. All right, would you take your Bibles now, please, with me and turn to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26 is, we are in this section of Genesis called dysfunctional. Because God has intended us to function in a manner that reveals his glory and builds healthy relationships because we were made for relationship, relationship with him and relationship with one another. But there are practices that can be a part of our lives that don't build healthy relationships, they ruin relationships. So as we think about the dysfunctional practice that we're gonna look at today, I have a question for you and this may be a generational question and I acknowledge. By a show of hands, even if you're at home and I can't see you, If you at one point growing up had your mouth washed out with soap, can I see your hands? Wow. Okay, look around. I'm not sure what's it. You have a bunch of filthy mouth people out there. That's a lot of you. I thought there might be just a handful. Now, again, that's probably generational because I'm not sure anybody under 30 probably raised their hand. There might be a select few, but, but my parents... And for those of us that happened to, unforgettable. And in fact, how many of you had happened once? Okay, the rest of you, slow learners. <laughs> happened to me once, and I was like, wow, what a miserable. If you, if you don't think I really mean literal, I mean literal. And we didn't have liquid soap back then, just the bar of soap, <laughs> getting called in the teeth, and then. <laughs> And what was the thought? Your speech needs cleansing. Now, that is not my parenting tip for today. Don't take that away from here. It was just a reality that my parents, and hopefully us, maybe that's not the path we want to go, but we will recognize there is a dysfunctional practice called deceit. And maybe it was for cussing or maybe it was for lying, that you got your mouth washed out. With soap. But it is what I would simply call a sin that easily entangles. Meaning, we all raised, so many raised their hand because deceitful words are pretty prevalent. And not just out there, not just in politics, in the church, in our families, in our marriages. And it's a sin that easily entangles because very rarely does deceit live just in a single statement. It has a way of like rabbits multiplying. And so it can entangle our lives. So as our practice has been, I'm going to look pretty quickly here at the repeated practice of this dysfunctional practice of deceit in this section in Genesis and then we're going to answer the questions, the important questions. Why do we do it and how do we stop? All right? So in the sin that easily entangles in Genesis, Isaac deceives a guy named Abimelech. And that's in Genesis chapter 26, verse 7, where it says, "When the men of the place where Isaac was living ask about his wife, that's Isaac's wife, Isaac said, "She's my sister." For he was afraid to say, she's my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebecca, for she is beautiful. Now some of you may be thinking, whoa, I thought that was Abraham. And it was. This is a son being like father here. Isaac does exactly what his daddy did. When it came to a moment of, uh uh-oh, risk, he lied. He literally said, She's my sister, when in fact she was his wife. Uh, then Jacob, Isaac's son, second son, he deceives dad. So <laughs> Abraham was a deceiver. Isaac was a deceiver. Jacob, actually, his name means deceiver. He deceives Isaac, his own dad. How? Well, when it came time where dad was about to die and it was the blessing of the sons, that Jacob wants the blessing of the firstborn even though he is not the firstborn. So with help from mom, he concocts a plan where they're gonna make dad, who can't see very well, think that Jacob is Esau. And in the midst of that deception, Isaac says to his son, please come close, that I may feel you, my son, whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau, which funny is they weren't. <laughs> they were the skin of an animal, which tells you how rough Esau was. But dad's like, I feel like I'm getting scammed here by my son. Just like lots of dads feel like they're getting scammed by their kids. So he's like, come over here. My, my ears are telling me one thing. Let me tell, see what my touch tells me. And he gets conflicting messages. So he asks him outright, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob says, I am. See, all, probably all of us have hit, hit that place where We've tried to craftily deceive, and then we're asked point blank. Are you telling the truth, or are you lying? And in that moment of decision, what's Jacob do? He outright lies to dad. I am, when he wasn't. Jacob then is deceived by his uncle. It's almost like lies flourish in families. Think about that one. How's that happen? Well, Jacob wants to marry Laban's daughter, Rachel. But here's what Laban does to him. So it came about in the morning after he had thought he had married Rachel, that behold, it was Leah, her older sister. And Jacob says to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Was it not for, Jake, for Rachel that I'd served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban's answer was not complicated. He said, because he can't marry off the younger daughter before the older daughter. He justified it because it was an unacceptable cultural practice to give Rachel before Leah was married. And then finally the sons of Jacob deceive Jacob. He has 12 sons, 10 of them deceive him in this way. So they took Joseph's tunic, remember Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob, and he got a a special coat, a coat of, remember this, many colors, a varied colored tunic. They take that, they slaughter a goat, they dip the tunic in the blood, and they send the tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. And dad goes, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Did they directly lie to him? Well, they certainly deceived him. They they, they aligned the facts so that what? He would think something that wasn't true. So we're fairly creative in our deception. Think about what we just read. Pretty creative in what Jacob did to his dad and what Jacob's boys did then to him, to what Jacob's uncle did to him. What I want us to understand Maybe you'd be willing to admit this about yourself. Sometimes you are most creative in your capacity to deceive. Why? In other words, what are we thinking when we go, I'm not going to stand with the truth here? I'm going to outright lie. I'm going to deceive. What's the thought process? Well, as I looked at these accounts and I looked through the scripture, uh, three reasons seem to surface about why we deceive. Not why we're tempted to deceive, why we deceive. Uh, the reason, number one, I think, is to protect ourselves, right? Is that not why Isaac lied about his wife? Because he wanted to protect himself. She's my sister. Uh, I might die on account of her. He, he was protecting himself. Ever lied to protect yourself? Yeah. The rest of you without your hands up are lying. Of course, you lied to protect yourself. Even as a little kid. Did you did you eat those cookies? No. Danny did. <laughs> now we lie. Cuz I don't want the punishment that comes from the truth. We do it as kids, but it doesn't stop with kids. So we we do it to protect ourselves. We do it to promote ourselves. Think about that. We deceive so that people will think better of us than we really are. Because if the truth was there, it would be like, ah, that's just not so good. So to promote ourselves. Show you that in Scripture. Acts gives us this account. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas, you may know that name, Barnabas, uh, the apostles, which translated means sons of encouragement, here's what he did. He owned a tract of land, sold it, and then he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And based on what happens next, it must have been a gift that people were like, wow, pretty, pretty generous of Barnabas. What a kind man. What a generous guy. It seems that must have happened because the next verse, here, that's how chapter 4 ends. Here's how, how chapter 5 begins. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for whom? Himself. Is that right or wrong? Well, think about it. It'll go on with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And even after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? And why? What's the the simple reason? He wanted people to think he was as generous as Barnabas. But he didn't want to be as generous as Barnabas. And Peter's point is this. Hey, if you only wanted to give a portion of it, that's not a problem. Just don't act like you've given all of it. Don't. Are you thinking about your own life right now? Don't deceive in order to protect yourself or to promote yourself, to make people think you're better than you actually are. Sometimes we punish others. See, first two are about ourselves, either protect or promote. But sometimes, and this you might go, that's just mean-spirited. Uh-huh, that's right. Sometimes... Because of jealousy, because of anger, we just want other people to pay. And you tell a lie in order for something bad to happen to them. Now, again, I didn't make these things up. This is just what we see in Scripture. Genesis 39, the wife of Potiphar comes on to the servant of Potiphar, Joseph, and he resists her sexual advance. And so she is so put off, so angry with him, she says to her husband, Potiphar, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me and as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Not true. It's the complete opposite of the truth. Why? She wanted to punish to make Joseph pay for spurning her sexual advance. We really are a deceitful bunch. Because I think really, if, if we're willing to even be honest about a sermon about honesty, <laughs> we can see over the course of our lives how... The temptation to protect, promote, or punish has led to deception. Do lies sometimes work? Absolutely, folks. Joseph ended up in prison. Lies work. Did Jacob think his boy, Joseph, was dead? Uh Uh-huh. Did Abimelech think, oh, your sister's a looker? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Lies sometimes work. And sometimes they (laughs) they don't. And they blow up in our face. So I want us to think just real quickly, what are the consequences of lies that don't work? In other words, they get exposed. You intentionally deceive To protect, promote, or punish, and you get busted. You get exposed. That you were not a truth teller, that you were a deceiver. What happens? Well, two things happen. Trust now is broken between you and others you relate with, right? Going forward, what's the question? You telling the truth? Because you didn't the last time or you didn't six months ago. From that point forward, the marriage or the parent-child or the sibling or or the boss-employee, employer-relationship, it's friendship, it's damaged, right? There's broken trust going forward. But it's just not about broken trust going forward. What's it about? It's about suspicious doubt about everything in the past now. I see this so often, regrettably, when a spiritual Christian leader gets to be exposed for living a deceitful life. And then the question is, well, what else was going on. It's not only can we trust them going forward, it kind of puts this shadow over the entire past. I only want us to think that because in the moment we deceive, or we lie, we're not seeing clearly what happens once it's exposed the damage it does to the relationship. And it's helpful sometimes to, to remember, not sometimes, it's helpful to always remember the consequences of lies exposed. So the point of the message is if you're going to lie, do it well. No. It's not. Why not? Because are there consequences for lies that work? Yeah, if you think, oh, (laughs) here's the way I want you to think about it. If you think, sweet, it worked, don't think sweet, it worked. One of the greatest gifts that God can give to us is that our lies get exposed quickly. Because when they work, what happens? Almost always. It takes more lies to cover up the first lie. <laughs> you see, it's not a gift to be a good liar. Unless, of course, you're playing a game. Sure, there's games that uh, maybe you go, oh, I've never play games with lying. Well, as long as you can understand when the game begins and when the game ends... But I play games with some of my family members where I'm like, you're a scary good liar. It makes me a little nervous when the game's over. (laughs) Because lies that work almost always lead to more lies, which leads to a deeper hole. You're digging yourself a deeper hole. And once effective lies end up being exposed, what do you end up with? Greater pain. I think almost every one of us could probably think, wow, if the initial lie would have been exposed instead of working, there would have been a lot less fallout than the lies and lies that covered the lies that dug the deeper hole that led to the greater pain. This is why the scripture says, what is desirable in a man is his kindness and it's better to be a poor man than a liar. See, that is is so powerful from Proverbs because really nobody wants to be a poor man. But it's better to be a poor man than a liar. In other words, the life of a liar will have far greater difficulty than the life of a poor man. Which leads us to a point now, to some varying degree, if currently, right now, uh, there is deception. Going on. And it didn't just start yesterday. It started six months ago or last year or ten years ago. And you have been covering, 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 covering the sin that so easily entangles. Look up here if you would. You ever felt like you're you're now in the straitjacket of your lies? How do you break out of that tangled web? Because I don't think I've told you, I may have put some words to things you've never really thought of, but I probably haven't told you anything that you didn't go, yeah, I know that. We kind of all know why we lie, whether we ever put it in three Ps or not. <laughs> and we kind of all know that, man, if I lie and it works, then I'm probably going to have to tell lies, and then it's going to get. It. And yet, we stay there. Partly because we're like, I don't know how to get out. It's a tangled web. So I want to turn, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 John, almost to the end of your New Testament. 1 John chapter 1. We're going to look at a passage here that I think gives us an important process for how do we deal with our lies? How do we escape this tangled web? And your message moment, if you printed it out, might have uh, verses six through nine. I'm actually gonna start at verse five in this how to escape your tangled web. John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and announce to you that God is light. That's an important, this is why we're starting in verse five. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now that's the picture. Watch how that picture unfolds. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, in other words, if we walk in the truth, as he himself is in the light, or as he himself is the truth, then what happens? We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from our sin, from our lies. But we'll look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, who are we deceiving? We're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, if we don't hide them and don't deny them, but we confess them, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now this passage is bigger than purely about lies and deception. But it gives us some very clear picture of what it means for us to escape the tangled web of our lies. And it begins with this. Humility. Humility that... We see ourselves honestly. We see ourselves for who we are. See, I hope you captured. It all begins with what he says there in verse eight. If we say we have no sin, who are we deceiving? Ourselves. If we're going to break the tangled web of lies, it begins by acknowledging before I deceive you, I first deceived me. I don't miss that. Before I deceived you, I deceived myself in thinking that protecting myself, promoting myself, or punishing you is a better choice than telling the truth. I had to deceive me before I'm going to deceive you. And sometimes we become so habitual in our commitment to protect and promote and to punish that we actually lose any sense of reality of the lies we say. We become so adept at justifying why we should protect ourselves, promote ourselves, or punish the other person, that we lose sight of the reality of who we are. Very practically, until there's humility in my heart, I'm never going to break out of my tangled web because it's my pride that's keeping me there. There's a transformational moment in Jacob's life where Jacob, the deceiver, watch, God changes his name. And that's that's a transformation that's gonna have to happen in all of us if we're gonna break out of our tangled web and acknowledge who we have acted like and who we are in God. New creatures who walk in light, who walk in truth, but we're actually still walking in darkness. It's humility. No transformation happens apart from a brokenness of, I'm not as good as I've attempted you to make, make you think that I am. Humility It says, I've been a deceiver. That humility then will require a next step. Courage. Courage. Why? Why courage? Simply because I'm afraid that if I take what's been cloaked in darkness, and I bring it into the light of truth, what's going to happen? Shame is going to descend upon me. The shame of how I have promoted myself falsely. The shame of how I have punished you by my deception. How I have been such a chicken that I've never been willing to allow the consequences of my sin to fall on my I've lied my way through. We're afraid if all that comes out, shame will overwhelm. It takes courage, which is why this may sound weird to you. Maybe you won't even agree. But I wanted my kids to always know this. I would rarely be more proud of them when they confessed to me. Now, you may think, I had to wrestle through this. Whoa. If I'm proud of them in their confession, am I endorsing and condoning their sin? Newsflash My kids sin, and I sin, and you sin, and your spouse sins, and your kids sin. It's not a question of whether we sin or not. What's the question? Whether we will humbly and courageously admit it. See, it's our fear of the shame of the light we think that light will bring that keeps us in darkness. And it takes courage. It takes courage to confess but don't miss. See, this, there's a, a fundamental truth here. And I think we know it here. We know this here: that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to, to do what? Forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know that here. but what do we think? We think if we confess our sins, shame will descend upon us in piles that we can never take. But apart from confession, friends, the cleansing we so desperately need never takes effect. So we're called in this. I'm afraid to come clean. Because if I come clean, shame will happen. And No, if you'll come clean, cleansing will take place. Can I tell you one more thing that might blow up your preconceived idea? Confession, all the tears and the anxiety and the anxiousness and the fear that leads up to confession, I get. But when the confession happens, you know what that is? That's a great moment. That's a celebratory moment. And I don't think we think of it accurately. I think when confession happens we think Gah! no, it's ah that leads us to confession, but when we confess then what? Whew! Cleansing and forgiveness. Which is ruling Your fear that light will bring shame, or God's word that light will bring forgiveness and cleansing. You see what I'm saying? It takes courage to believe the faith to believe that that confession will bring cleansing. hopefully all of us can testify until we have confessed. And then I was like, oh, I experienced the joy of cleansing. Years ago in a room, three men, two of us with a guy who is lying and we know he's lying, but he won't admit that he's lying and there's just this brokenness and tension and we had met and he refused me we came back days later and we met again and this time we had literally hard evidence that he was lying but we weren't revealing it yet because we wanted confession not like prosecution and there was this moment where you could see the lord break him And he was like, you're right. I've been lying. I did exactly what you said. And I stood up and said, praise the Lord. (laughs) And both of them looked at me like, you're an idiot. And so then I sat down real fast thinking, I must be an idiot. (laughs) And I, I had this conflict in me at that moment. Why did I do that? And was that wrong? But I gotta tell you, I've looked back and thought, no, my heart was right on target at that moment. That was a celebratory moment because now with confession, God can finally finally work. Forgiveness, cleansing. You see what I'm saying? We have this fear that this is gonna be terrible and if I admit they're gonna go, you lousy slug you. And we'll talk about this in a moment. Sometimes that's what we do. And so, in this truth telling, we need to learn to not only tell truth, we need to learn to be able to receive truth. Because sometimes we can make it hard for people to tell the truth. Faith that believes it's going to bring cleansing, forgiveness from the Lord, but not only that. Did you see what it said in verse 7? If we walk in the light as he himself, if we walk in the truth as he himself is the truth, we have not only cleansing, what do we have? Fellowship with one another. You see, honesty not only brings cleansing from the Lord, honesty will bring authentic fellowship with one another. Until there's honesty, I can't really ever know you or you know me. As long as we live with the desire to protect and to promote or punish, we'll never really know one another. Do you know that in the book of Acts when it talks about their fellowship with one another in those opening, as the church, that their fellowship with one another, that the Greek word there is koinonia. You know what that means? That means suffering together. So why do we often lack fellowship? Because there's, a lack of honesty that allows me to step into your pain and your heart and for you to step into my pain and my heart. So we end up having fellowship groups, family groups, <laughs> but nothing really real. Because the level of fellowship in every family group is dependent and in direct co- correlation to the level of honesty. It's when somebody goes "Here's what's happening in my life," that now we can suffer together. Now, if somebody goes, "Here's what's hard in my life, and everybody runs. What did we just teach that person to do? Don't share. That'll make people run. Let's be people. When people share who we don't run, we move towards. And the rest of the group will go, maybe I can share too. How we not only speak truth, but how we receive truth makes a huge difference in how truth is exposed or not exposed going forward. So let me give some practical application for healthy relationships about truth. First of all, let me make sure that we recognize the discernment needed in healthy relationships. In other words, we can go, we, we either are one of two extremes. I never reveal really the truth. I always cloak my real me in darkness so you don't know me and I protect myself. Or I get in my head, okay, I'm committed to truth. And I think, therefore, it's all truth all the time to everybody. You ever known that person? A lack of discernment. Let me give you an extreme example. Jackie and I are with another couple at a restaurant here in Mandarin. We stop in for dinner and the waitress comes up to the table and she goes, hey, I'm so-and-so. I can't remember her name. She tells us her name. Uh, How can I help you? And we go, hey, hey, how you doing? And and just, you know, how you doing? I'm really not feeling very well tonight. Now, this was pre-COVID, but imagine... It, it, this was during COVID. Well, you know, I got this, like, cough and little fever. <laughs> Do you ever really want to hear your waitress say to you, I'm really not doing very well, and, I, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not feeling well? You think, hmm, maybe you should go home and have somebody else deliver the food to my table. Right? So she says, I'm not feeling very well. Oh, I'm sorry. I hope you feel better. Well, actually, she says, I have a drinking problem. We're 10 seconds in, max, to our relationship of a drinking problem. Now, did she need to tell somebody that? Yes. Her customers 10 seconds in? Probably not. But it hit an all-time extreme when she took a knee and said, actually, I have an infection, and told us what type which I'm not gonna tell you, because that's just way too much, right? And we're thinking, wow, oh, there needs relationship here, but not that level right now in this place. You get it? And oh, you go, well, that's, that's really extreme. Well, discernment's always needed. This week we're with a couple couples and the husband very graciously acknowledges a weakness. This wasn't horrible. It was just, I often do this. And I thought as he was saying, oh, that's just really kind of courageous of you to speak that weakness. And he's no finished speaking. And his wife goes, no kidding. He's like the worst. And I thought, Well, no, I didn't think. I said, no, no. (laughs) Too much. (laughs) He gets to share his weaknesses. And you don't need to, like, put it on a microphone or a spotlight. Now, is it true? Yeah, he admitted it was true. Was it true that she had a drinking problem and an infection? (laughs) Yes. I mean, I'm assuming it was true. Why else would she tell me that? But all truth is not needed at all. And here we go. That's so obvious. But if you exercise discernment, we need to think of what it says in Ephesians 4.29. We'll look at this more next week. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for education according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. See, it's not just about... I tell the truth all the time to everybody. There's discernment needed. walking in the staff hallway, and one of the other staff members walks by me, and I affectionately say to him, Hey, Batman. And he turns around and he says, Did you just call me Fat Man? And I laughed I was like, no, I didn't call you, I called you Batman. And even if you were fat, is that really what I think you'd think I would say walking down the, hey, fat man? <laughs> and if he was fat, would it be a good for me to tell him the truth every day in the staff? Office, hey, fat man, hey, fat man, call you fat man till you're not fat man anymore. Then you would go, that's so stupid, Doug. Of course, no, no one would ever do that. Actually, some would. Under what guise? We speak the truth. We use discernment. Love. And what else? Grace. Here we go. How much? To whom? When? Those are good questions. Those are legitimate, biblical, loving questions to ask about when we speak the truth. Yes, folks, I want us, I want us to, to understand that relationship is built on honesty, but we're not equally honest to everybody about everything, right? I mean, suppose my young family's group shows up at my house tonight and it's been two weeks. So I go, Hey, how y'all doing? And the husband goes, it's terrible. She won't have sex with me. And she goes, "Whoop! he's been looking at porn. Oh, even if it's true, right now, with the 22 of us on my side porch, number one, you broke the rule. If he goes, not well, I've been looking at porn. It's probably too much, but at least he said it. See, here's a principle that I think is Good to think about relationship. On a Sunday morning with hundreds, my goal, I want to know your name. In my family group, I want to know your life. In an accountability partner, I want to know your heart. You see what I'm saying? There there is how much to whom, when. And grace must abound can't say this enough for us. Grace must abound. What I mean by that? As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Those are all expressions of grace, aren't they? Listen to this. When someone brings truth to you, Have a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. One of the first things I want to say when somebody brings confession to me is not, you did what? Or how could you do that? Or I thought you were better than that. You know what I want to say? And I hope you'll learn to say, thanks for sharing that. I I know that was so hard to actually admit to. Compassion, kindness, gentleness. Don't go, hey, it's no big deal. Because when somebody confesses something, it can feel a little awkward. Don't say, it's no big deal. Grace doesn't ignore sin. Grace acknowledges temptation's real. And weakness is real. And failure is real. And the human heart wants to keep it in darkness. And you, by faith and courage, brought. Out in the light. Way to go. And just don't stop there. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. As recipients of the grace of God, we give grace an ungracious person makes it hard to be honest with. That's not an excuse. It's not an excuse to lie. But a gracious person helps a person who who wants to be courageous to be courageous. And it's kind of sad to me, CFC, when a church is a less gracious place than a bar. Do you know why people tell the truth at the bar? <laughs> because they're not going to get whacked with the judgment and condemnation. And you know why people hide at the church? Because they're afraid that if they take a courageous step, there won't be grace. Now, did I say ignore sin? I'm not saying the bar is the ideal. (laughs) I'm saying, let's acknowledge sin is sin. And I sin. And I fail. And I need cleansing. And I need forgiveness. And because I've received it, I give it. When there is grace abounds, then honesty can come clean and fellowship can happen. See, it's a celebratory moment. Uh, Matt and Isaac over in north led us in this, this song we learned this morning. There's a savior, there's a king, there's a power beyond defeat. This is the good news His name is Jesus. There's a healer. There's a friend. There's a mercy, say it with me, that never ends. Say it with me again. There's a mercy that never ends. This is the good news. His name is Jesus. Hey, I want us to join our hearts together as we declare, as we learned at the beginning that there is good news here and that is that grace abounds, that you and I do not need to stay in darkness. We can step into light, believing by faith that there's a savior, a healer. His name is Jesus. So maybe you would bow right there where you are. And you would humbly take the first step right now. And admit to your God what you've been trying to hide. Maybe even you know know he knows. But you just don't want to admit it. To confess it to him. Would you confess to him right now? Believing he's a healer, he's a savior, a forgiver, merciful and gracious. Because confession is a joyful moment Would you stand and let's declare this together joyfully to our savior.